All right, um, Psalm 2, the title of my sermon is The Promise of the Messiah. The big idea, give your allegiance to the merciful king. Give your allegiance to the merciful king. Um, let's go ahead and just read Psalm 2. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'll give you a moment to turn there. So maybe you're thinking, wow, he's going to do it. I mean, Psalm 1 last week, Psalm 2 this week. Next week is Psalm 3. Is he going to go through the entire Psalter? I'm not. Uh, it just happens that I will be preaching through the first three, and then I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So uh, Psalm 2, I'm sure most of you have heard this one. Let's read it together. Actually, I'll read it. You can listen. It starts off, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that's the word for Messiah, Moshiach in Hebrew, the Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and, and cast away their cords from us. <laughs> he who sits in the heavens laughs. I love that verse. He who sits in the heavens, how does he respond to the world's rebellion? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh, that's so good. All right, so we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, Great Expectations. Not the book by Charles Dickens, even though I'm a fan of Dickens. I think I've read most everything he's written. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about sports, right? If you're a, a diehard Cowboys fan or maybe Seahawks fan, I'm not sure. No, yeah. No Russell Wilson? Like, what happened? Um, there's an interesting story about him today anyways. Uh, may, maybe you're a Rangers fan, and we got so close. Was it back in 2012? That was such a bummer. But maybe, you know, when a new season begins for the Cowboys or the Texas Rangers, and, and they've gotten some new players, some fresh blood, and maybe some new coaching staff, and you're like, this is the year. It's finally going to happen. We call that what? Maybe naivete, but that's not what I'm saying. Just high expectations. You're excited, right? This year they're going all the way. This is the year. Willem van Gimmeren writes, As the word of God to Israel, Psalm 2, which is our psalm tonight, function to rouse God's people to trust in him and to look for an error, a season, an era or a season that would see the removal of all enemies. That sounds really good, right? The removal of all enemies. The enthronement of the anointed king. The universal rule of God and peace for God's people. This psalm is a beautiful picture of what? Of the gospel. Of the gospel and all that God would accomplish. Here we have in Psalm 2 in preview form the good news of God concerning both his rule and his rescue. His peace and his provision. His goodness and his grace, his victory. Psalm 2 resonates with gospel expectation, the hope of rescue and restoration. So we come to Psalm 2 not with great expectations anymore, but with what? With gratitude, because we know what's being promised here has been what? It's been fulfilled. Here's what I want to do, and this is going to take a little time. I, I want to basically help us to see Psalm 2 in its complete biblical theological context. Where does Psalm 2 fit in the grand story of God's rescue? That's a big undertaking, but I think we can do it. Psalm 2 was a psalm of great hope. This psalm, and this is why I didn't pass it up, represented the fulfillment of God's promises to Adam and Eve, okay, to Abraham, and to David. Evil would be vanquished, 
and the nations would be rescued through God's representative, a king. These were the expectations of God's people for their king. And, and likely, very likely, this psalm was sung when a new king came to power. There was hope, there was expectation. Could this be the guy? Could this be the one? The ruler described in Psalm 2 exemplified the characteristics of the ideal king. Psalm 2 pointed to the long-awaited Messiah. It's a psalm of promise. It looked ahead to the Messiah, the one described throughout the Old Testament as God's anointed king, who would serve as God's instrument of justice and peace and healing, and whose reign, his reign would spread to the uttermost parts of God's world. And if you know the Bible, you know that God's kingship is woven into the very fabric of creation. At the beginning, we see who is king? Who's the creator? Who's sovereign? It's God. God is king. He's king. That's a huge theme. If, if you said, hey, what, what's the main theme in Scripture? I'd probably say the kingdom of God or, or God's kingship. Even when Adam and Eve rejected God's kingship in the garden, did that mean that God stopped being king? What do you think? No, of course not. Of course not. God never stopped being king. He was king over his people Israel. And yet, what did they eventually request? An earthly king to be like the surrounding nations. Who was that first king? Saul. And, and how did he do? How would you grade Saul? Hopefully poorly. He missed the mark. And yet, the Lord, in his grace, raised up a, a king after his own heart. And who was that? David. And, and David served to sort of prefigure the great king to come. David was a pointer to the greater king to come, who is Jesus, Jesus. And yet, I've mentioned this before, there's, there's two parallel promises in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. There's the promise that God is going to send a representative, a king, an anointed one to rescue his people, right? So, that, I mean, that's a great promise. God's going to send a king, right? That's Isaiah, all over Isaiah. That, that's Daniel. But then you have the promise, Ezekiel, but then you have the promise that God's going to come as king. Which is it? Yes. Because the king to come is who? He's God. Jesus is fully God. Now with Jesus, and if you're familiar with the Gospels, I'm thinking of John 6 here, right? After Jesus feeds the 5,000, what do the people want to do? They want to make him what? They're ready to make him king. I mean, there's, there's whispers. This could be the guy. This could be the one, right? Even John the Baptist in prison says, you know, are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? Now, the coming one was a title for the king, the Messiah. So with Jesus, with Jesus on the scene, the hopes, the expectations surrounding Psalm 2 are rekindled. And then what happens? All chaos breaks out. The would-be king is captured. He's beaten. A, a crown of thorns are placed on his head rather mockingly, and then he dies. He's crucified. What appeared from the world's perspective to be defeat was actually what? It's actually victory. At the cross, the opposing forces were dealt with, and by his resurrection, the king ascended to his proper place of glory, cosmic recognition that this is the king. Jesus is king, amen? Jesus is king. Psalm 2 would ultimately find its fulfillment in who? Christ. What type of psalm is this? It's called a kingship or royal psalm. So this type of psalm, and there's a few of these in the Psalter, focus on God's sovereign establishment of the earthly king, his anointed one, or on God's heavenly kingship in comparison to the world's kings, right? I mean, when you compare God as king to the world's kings, <laughs> what? There's no comparison, right? Now, more often than not, this type of psalm looks ahead to the Messiah, the one who would come from the line of David, whose rule would be glorious, and it would extend. I mean, so it's not just king over one area, but this king, his rule would be recognized globally. Amen? And if you, if you fast forward to the Gospel of Matthew, 
and the Great Commission, what does Jesus say after he's raised from the dead? All authority, not some, but all in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what is the Great Commission? Go and make disciples, not of some nations, but of all nations, all nations. Steve Lawson notes, these royal psalms, these royal, and if you're looking for a great book on the psalms, man, Steve Lawson's book on the psalms is probably my favorite, honestly. And I've read quite a few. Um, Bonhoeffer's is okay. Uh, you know, he had some good things to say about discipleship, sure. But man, Lawson's book is really helpful. So um, maybe I'll add that to the book, Nick. I'll talk to Aaron this next week. But he writes, these royal psalms look forward to the coming of the Messiah, the greater Davidic king, who will triumph where the earthly kings failed. And so where the earthly kings failed, the coming king would succeed. He would triumph. And that's what these psalms are about. When we look at, you know, I'll be honest. You know, when, when you look at our political landscape, you can get frustrated. It's easy to get frustrated, right? But as Christians, you know, even... Even if the other guy had won, our hope is not in our president, is it? It's not my hope. I mean, earthly rulers are always going to fail morally, right? But that's not our... Who's our king? Who is the king who's going to come again and right all wrongs? His glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's, that's Jesus. So we can rest in knowing that that's our king. Our, our king conquered death. Our king is coming back, and he's going to right all wrongs. And again, what we're seeing in these, these royal or messianic psalms is that there's no king like our king. Amen? There's no king like our king. It's likely that this psalm, Psalm 2, originated during the reign of King David, and like I said, was later used during the coronation ceremony of future kings, right? And so again, it was a song of expectation. It looked ahead to God's promise of the coming king who would put things right. Now, this is helpful because this gives us good context from last week. So Psalm 2, along with Psalm 1, readies the reader for true worship. Remember I, I said last week that Psalm 1 is the gateway into the Psalter, right? What do we have to reckon with in Psalm 1? That God's revelation through his word is supreme. Amen? And as Christians, we come under that word. We, we do what his word says. We go where his word says go. Amen? There's two ways, right? There's the way of the world and there's the way of God's word. There's the way of the Lord. So here's what we see. True worship and the true worshiper recognizes both God's revelation in his word and God's rule through his anointed. The true worshiper recognizes God's revelation in his word and God's rule through his anointed. The true worshiper recognizes God's revelation and God's rule through his kings. So think revelation and rule. Here's the structure of Psalm 2. And I put this in your notes. In verses 1 to 3, we have worldly rebellion. Worldly rebellion. Verses 4 to 6, we have heavenly rule. Heavenly rule. Verses 7 to 9, we have the heavenly decree of worldwide victory for the Messiah. In verses 10 to 12, heavenly mercy. Heavenly mercy through the Messiah extended to the world. All right, so verses 1 to 3, Worldly what? Rebellion. Okay, so why? It's kind of, it's almost comical. The nations are raging against the Creator. How's that going to work out? I mean, it's not going to work out well for those who are shaking their fists at God. We know that. Okay, we know the story. We know how it all ends. But let's read it. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot, and their plotting is in what? It's in vain. What does that mean? It's worthless, right? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. They're, they're plotting against the Lord, against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we know this. If, if you know history, the establishment of a new king often invited rebellion. People don't like change, and when a new king came to power, oftentimes people saw it as an opportunity to do what? To rebel, maybe commit mutiny. Hey, times of transition, oftentimes, what? 
opportunity to step in. The nation's rage. This is an interesting word, ragash in Hebrew. It refers to a disorderly ruckus. <laughs> and they plot, they, they set themselves, the Hebrew there, they take their stand against. It's like they are resolute in their defiance. And they take counsel together. They're meeting together, plotting together, deliberating together, meeting together. Why? How can we get rid of this king? How can we unite and rebel against this king? What event does that sound like in the Old Testament? Genesis 11. They're making a name for themselves or trying to. Tower of Babel, right? United in the rebellion against God. The nations declare all-out rebellion against the Lord and his king. And really, guys, this has been the declaration of humanity ever since the fall, right? I mean, this should not sound foreign to us because this is our natural heart's cry. God, you're not king, I am. We come out of the womb saying that, right? (laughs) What's Sammy saying? I think she's saying I'm king. (laughs) That's my daughter, by the way. Verse 3 represents the goal or purpose of the rebellious nations. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They, the enemies of God, the nations, sinful humanity, they desire complete autonomy, complete independence from God and his rule. And what do we see in Genesis 3? What does Satan say to Adam and Eve? If you disobey, if you eat, you'll become Just like God. You won't need God. God is now superfluous, right? You can be God. What a lie. What a crock, right? Can I say that? I did. What a crock. This was the treacherous lie of the garden. Our self-rule will never amount to anything. It will always be in vain. Because to reject God's rule is to invite death, right? Agreed? To reject God's rule is to invite death. Death. So the picture painted for us in verses 1, 2, and 3 is that of chaos, division, and rebellion. And the point is this. Without God as king, there is no peace. Okay? Without God as king, there is no peace. Let me make just a few more additional observations here. The people's plot in vain. This is the same verb we saw last week in Psalm 1, Hagah. What was Hagah? To meditate, to plan, to think. They are planning, they are meditating, and what is the the content of their meditation? They're plotting rebellion. But it's what? It's in vain, it's worthless, because it's against the Lord and his anointed. Now, it's interesting that the text says against the Lord and his anointed, because to rebel against the Lord's anointed is tantamount to rebelling against who? The Lord, right? Right? Now, the Hebrew word, I mentioned this earlier, for anointed is Moshiach, from where we get the word Messiah, anointed one. The Greek word is Christos, Christ. Christ means anointed one. So at at the coronation ceremony, right after the king would say, okay, I, I swear to the covenant, I'm committed to the law, I'm committed to the covenant, he would then be anointed with oil. And this represented divine approval. This is God's man. This is the guy, 2 Kings 11, 12. The anointing language also recalls 1 Samuel 16. What happens when David is anointed by Samuel? Who comes down upon him? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We have divine recognition that this is the guy, this is the what? He's the king. So the language of anointed speaks of divine recognition. Now, in the New Testament, if you come to the New Testament, the early church saw these verses as finding their fulfillment in the crucifixion of Jesus. In Christ, the king had come, and yet the world did not recognize him. More than that, they violently, the world violently what? Rejected him. This is John 1, 9-11 The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then we go to Acts 4. Acts 4, 25 to 28, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
And now he quotes references Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Worldly rebellion is still a reality. In Acts 4, what do we have? In Acts 4, God's people are found praying for boldness to continue extending forth the gospel in the midst of opposition and persecution. The worldly powers and the demonic powers continue to rage. They continue to oppose God's reign through his Messiah. And yet, these worldly powers have been disarmed and dethroned. Their rebellion is in vain. Their attempts are what? They're worthless. Recall Paul's words in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this was God's sovereign plan, namely the conquering of the king at Calvary. Ironically, this was the necessary means of victory. And then we have verses 4 to 6, heavenly rule. He who sits in the heavens, what? He laughs. The world rebels. They oppose, they rage, they plot. And how does God respond? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That means disdain. He disapproves of them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, in the Hebrew here, it's just, but me, right? This is you, but me. That's your response, but me. Here's my response. Ooh, And what's God's response? I have set my king on Zion. Oh, I got my king. He's coming. My holy hill. So this is what's interesting. Is the Lord worried? Is he frightened? Is he out of sorts? No, he's not perturbed. He's not threatened by the rebellious plots of the nations, the worldly powers. So I've mentioned this story. We did a men's event up in Canada. We invited Vody Bauckham to be our speaker He did a great job, taught through Ephesians. I got to spend a lot of time with him one-on-one. I feel like we became friends, but if I saw him today, he probably wouldn't recognize me. That's okay, right? We haven't kept in touch, but we wrestled. We wrestled because he does jujitsu, and so I wrestled with him quite a bit. And then I planned the games for this. We had like 200 men here. I planned the games, and the big game for the men after dinner one night was arm wrestling competition. I love to arm wrestle. Many of you guys could beat me, but I just love it. I enjoy it. I do. I like watching it too. It's weird, but I like watching arm wrestling. So each cabin picked their guy. My cabin picked me, and I won. I won the tournament. I couldn't, I won the tournament. Like six guys I had to beat, and I won. But here was the surprise. The winner had to arm wrestle Vody. Now, Vody is a big man. He's a big, beautiful man. Big old handsome man. Played Division I football at Rice. He's a giant. And he said, are you ready, Chris? And I said, yes, sir. And so he put hands down. And I'm not feeling confident at all because his hand swallowed mine. I felt like a little baby. It's like when I'm holding Samantha's hand and we're walking down the street. That's how my hand looked in his. What in the world? <laughs> and he said, you ready? And I said, yeah. And he goes, go. And he said, Chris, you're not ready? Boom! I was like, oh, you broke my arm! My bone was thin. Didn't break my arm. But I mean, he slammed me down. Was Bodhi worried? Was he perturbed? Was he concerned? No, man. Times infinity is what we have in Psalm 2 for the Lord. He laughs. So I have, uh, I think, four points tonight from our text. What picture is painted of our Lord in these verses? Okay, so. Guys, understand, the nations, the the powers, I mean, when you were in charge back then, I mean, you had a menacing army. People were afraid. People ran for cover, right? And, I mean, battles back then, I mean, they were atrocious. They were violent and bloody, right? It was ugly. I mean, people were afraid of the big powerhouses. Think of, you know, Babylon. 
Think of Rome and, and Greece. Is God worried? No, man, he laughs. And so point number one, the Lord is sovereign. I mean, that's verses one to six. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is not out of sorts. He's clearly not threatened. He's in control, and he simply answers. Now, this is beautiful. He answers. How does the Lord answer their threats? Did you catch it? It's in quotations. Come on. (laughs) What will the Lord do? Two words. The king. The king. His anointed is his answer. God's established king will serve as his instrument of justice. And I hate that that word has become an ugly word today, justice, because we think of like social justice. When I say justice, the biblical word justice just means God's commitment to right wrongs. Amen? To deal with problems. And what is our biggest problem? It's sin. Because sin is what separates us from God. And who dealt with that at the cross? Jesus. And we look around today and the world is not as it will be. We know that one day... There's going to be one, no more death, no more pain, no more sadness, no more tears, no more evil, no more sin. Amen? And who's going to bring that about? Who's coming back to finish his work? Christ, the king. The king is God's righteous reply to the rebellious worldly powers. I mean, that's the response right there, Daniel, right? It's like the king. (laughs) Number two, the king is the solution to the problem. That's verse six. I love this, as for me. Again, the Hebrew, it's like, but me, but me. This, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm laughing, but me. This is what I'm going to do. This is my response. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion was the place of what? The, the temple. It was the site of the temple and thus represented God's dwelling place on earth. It was a special place of revelation where the Lord had visibly manifested his presence. God would be represented and revealed by this king. Zion and its temple symbolized heaven. And we're going to see this in Exodus with the tabernacle. What Moses, when he's taken up into the glory, the Shekinah glory, what he beholds is what he's called to make. And so the temple, the tabernacle were really They were copies of heaven, in a sense, in a very real sense. We'll unpack all that here in a few weeks. So Zion in its temple symbolized heaven. Therefore, the earthly king's reign in Zion was to mirror. It was to be a beautiful, clear representation of God's reign in heaven. Amen? The king's rule was to be a mirror reflection of God's heavenly rule. Now, who alone could do this perfectly? Who alone? Christ. Christ. Now, the next section of Psalm 2 deals with the content of the Davidic covenant. This is from 2 Samuel 7, verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 2. This is the heavenly decree of worldwide victory for the Messiah. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you or become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You are my son. Today I have become your father. This is kingship language. At the coronation ceremony of the king, by means of what the anointing oil, he would be recognized as God's adopted or elected what? King, ruler. And this further recalls 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Steve Lawson writes, This God-king relationship is so close that it is often pictured as a father-son relationship. So again, the use of this father-son language denotes what? Intimacy, closeness, commitment, and love between God and his king his representative. And who is that? Who is the king to come? Christ, the Lord, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Now, what would typically happen during this ceremony, this coronation ceremony? Would a new king would be established? Again, they'd be anointed with oil. Would the people rejoice, you think? Would there be excitement? Yes. One brother says, after the coronation, 
he ascended the throne and issued an ultimatum to his enemies. And what do you think that was? Bow down or be gone, right? I mean, you either recognize or... Then you would have messengers, heralds would go and they would run to the surrounding districts announcing that so-and-so has become king. And at this point, the people rejoiced because for many, his reign was regarded as what? A new season, a, a new era. Who are the messengers today announcing kingship? That's us. That's the church. What, I mean, what are we called to announce? Jesus is king. And you either get off the throne and trust in him or what? Or you're going to be judged. And you're going to be cut off forever. Where is this son of God language used in the New Testament? How, how does Psalm 2 point to Jesus? Mark 1, 10 to 11, let's go Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Again, Son of God language, that was king language, right? So when, when the Father says, You're my Son, he's not just saying you're the second person of the Trinity, but you are what? You are the? This is who? This is the? This is the king. The long-awaited king. The long-promised king. At his baptism, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. Now again, what does anointing mean? Christ, right? Christ, Messiah, means anointed one. So when the Spirit descends, I mean, come on, guys. This is like a divine declaration. At Jesus' baptism, the Father says, you're my son. The Spirit descends. What are we to recognize? This is the long-awaited, this is the King. This whole scene represents divine recognition that Jesus is indeed the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah, the King. And then we have Mark 9, 7, the transfiguration. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved, what? It's my son. Listen to him. Again, here Jesus is divinely recognized to be the long-awaited Messiah, the promised King. Furthermore, this event, the, the transfiguration, Jesus dazzling white, right? Whiter than any bleach can make him. It's a pointer to what event? The resurrection. The resurrection. Romans 1.4, And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. What event I would say what two events, because in John's gospel, John talks about the cross as the moment when Jesus will be lifted up or exalted. That's the image of a king, right? A king is what? Exalted. Where was Jesus lifted up? At the, literally at the cross, right? So at the cross, he's declared to be king, but by his resurrection, because what did the resurrection result in? What happened after the resurrection? He then ascended to the right hand of the Father at the throne, by which he is now declared to be what? He's king. He's king. What has the resurrection to do with Jesus being king? Oh, I love preaching the resurrection. The image itself, along with the ascension, conveys exaltation on the other side of victory. Jesus, he's won. Death has been defeated. And the resurrection is proof par excellence that he is king. Acts 13, 29-33, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. What is Luke connecting here? The resurrection to Jesus being declared the, the king, the son. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So Jesus' coronation, his rise to king, was powerfully showcased by his resurrection from the dead. In Romans 1 and Acts 13, he was raised, and now he shares the throne with the Father. He is his king. Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 8 speaks of the king's universal rule. 
Yahweh for the nations. This is huge. So ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Go to Psalm 22 and look at 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. God's rescue mission has always been universal in scope. What was God's promise to Abraham? Genesis 12, 3. Abraham, through your seed, through your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Voice eight, or voice, verse 8 points us to the Great Commission as well. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And by that authority, he says, go make disciples of all nations. So God's heart, his desire is that all nations recognize him to be what? To be? To be king. To be king. Verse 9. Oh man, verse 9 is pretty hardcore. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So verse 9 is rather threatening. (laughs) It serves as a warning to those who heard the messenger's declaration of the established king and who still refused to give that king their allegiance. When we give the gospel, we are declaring a royal message. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? We are ambassadors. That's king language, right? An ambassador was sent by a what? By a king. We're ambassadors. We're sent. We're making an appeal. Be reconciled to God. Come to Jesus. When we give the gospel, we are making a royal declaration. We're saying Jesus is king. And those who refuse to come under his kingship, those who refuse to repent and get off the throne and trust in Jesus, will be what? They're going to be judged. They're going to be crushed. John 3.36, it says, whoever believes in the Son will have life, right? But whoever doesn't obey the Son will not see life because God's wrath remains on him. What does this section, verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 2 point to? Number three, the Lord's certain victory and universal rule. That's not universalism. Okay, Obviously not everyone's going to be saved, but God's heart is for the... We've seen it in Exodus. God's heart is for the, the nations. He wants the nations to know that he is king. So things may look out of sorts today, but don't be fooled. God is in control He has won, and his victory will be seen by all one day. Amen? And his victory is certain. Our last section, verses 10 to 12. Heavenly mercy through the Messiah extended to the world. Now, this is really good. This is, I love the ending of Psalm 2. Now, therefore, talk about mercy. I mean, it could have just ended with verse 9. You're going to break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that could have been it. But that's not how the psalm ends. Now, therefore, he's drawing a conclusion. There's a final plea. O kings, be wise. Right? I mean, it's like, it's Psalm 1. There's two paths. One leads to certain death. Life apart from God forever. The other one, eternal life. And what would you say to the lost? Be wise. Don't choose death. Choose life. So again, if you go the way of the world... What's going to happen? I mean, they're going to be smashed, dashed, crashed, mashed, all the ashed words. What are some other ones? Ash, mashed, I don't know, anyways. Bashed, yeah, bashed. But if you go the way of the king, the way of the true king, be wise, listen, be warned, O rulers of the earth. What mercy, what grace, be warned. I said this often, God's warnings are his mercy, amen? Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. And here it is Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Take refuge in Him. That's where true blessing is found. So, this is, I mean, again, if you've read Psalm 2, you're not surprised. But if you've not read Psalm 2, you should be surprised by this ending. 
This is a surprising ending. It really is. What grace, what mercy. Here we have an ultimatum of mercy. I think of Mark 1.15. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You're going to die. No, repent and believe in the good news. Turn from your sin and believe in the gospel. Who are the rebels? Who are the nations? Who are the plotters? That's us, friends, all of us. That, that we were all born into that world. It's true. We are the rebels who reject God and seek to rule our lives independently of God. And yet, the offer of grace and mercy is still given. Oh, verse 11, be wise, be warned. Be wise, be warned. True wisdom is seen in heeding the gracious warning of God in his word. And what is the warning? What is the response the psalmist is calling for? Number four, here it is, number four, last point. Give your allegiance to King Jesus. Give your allegiance. Commit to the king. Trust in the king. Embrace the king. Love the king. Kiss the king. It's verses 10 to 12. Remember, the king is the solution. The king is the solution. Serve the Lord with fear. The, the Hebrew word for serve is avav, and it means to worship. Worship the Lord in fear. Do you know this word avav? It, it denotes a total reorientation of one's life. It's much like what Jesus says in Mark 8, 34, right? If you're going to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. Man, I don't want to. Right? I mean, naturally, I want to go my way. Naturally, I want to be independent. Naturally, I want to be king. Naturally, I want to be at the center. No, man, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to get out the way. You've got to get out the center. What's that Carrie Underwood song? And Jesus, take the wheel. But there's some truth there, right? I mean, you've got to give your life to Christ. Get out the way. Get off the throne. Deny yourself. Evolve is a complete reorientation of your life. Serve or worship the Lord with what? What word? With fear. And this word denotes holy reverence and awe. This is true wisdom. Acknowledging God as the creator and author of salvation. Fear is awe. It is a right view of God as the only one who can satisfy and save and then the text says, kiss the son. Kiss the son. This was an act of submission, much like bowing the knee, right? So to kiss the son, you got to kiss the ring, right? Kiss my hand, right? To kiss the son is to submit to the son. It's that evolve. It's that reorientation. Get out the way. Get off the throne. Deny yourself. You're not king. Who's king? Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Now what, again, this is... This language is maybe foreign to us, right? We're not a part of a monarchy. Maybe we don't understand how this works. So what does this look like practically today? To serve the Lord and to kiss the Son. To serve the Lord with fear and to kiss the Son. Repent. It's abdicating the throne of your heart. So think of it this way. You as king equals death. Christ as king equals what? Life. So repent. Abdicate the throne of your heart. Number two Give your allegiance to King Jesus. So, again, someone has to be on the throne. When you step off, the throne can't remain empty, right? And so who's going to be there? Jesus needs to be there, amen? Because he's the only true king. So give your allegiance to King Jesus. This is the faith piece. You trust in him and not yourself. And then number three, live in awe of him. Be wowed by his grace and his mercy and his goodness. And hopefully every time you gather with the church and every time you open God's word and you behold his glory here, you're what? You're in awe. You're wowed by the king. And note the, oh, the promise in the final line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So who was here last week? That word blessed what does it mean to be blessed? We talked about Psalm 32. It's salvation language, right? To be blessed is to be right with God. That is the ultimate blessing. It refers to a new state. Your situation has changed. When you're right with God, you are truly what? You're blessed. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the king. Oh, man, that word take refuge. Chassah. Chah. Everybody go, chah. Chassah. I love this quote from Kidner. There is no refuge from him, only refuge in him. I think one of the clearest pointers to the gospel in the Old Testament is Noah's Ark. Because what happens? God rescues Noah and his family, but he shuts the door. He shuts them up in the ark. And in the ark, they are protected from God's what? His judgment, his wrath. When you trust in Jesus, you are taking refuge in the king. You're being rescued, saved, protected from what? God's, his wrath, his wrath. Hide yourself in the sun. Trust in Jesus. Look to Jesus for shelter from the wrath of God. Again, that's that John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son will not see life because God's wrath, what? It remains because they're not in Christ. But if you're in Christ, you're protected from God's wrath because that wrath has been absorbed by Jesus for you. Amen? Psalm 2's agreement with Psalm 1 is staggering. Life is found only in God and his royal and redemptive provision of Jesus Christ. There are two paths. Life with Jesus as king equals life. Life with you as king equals death, the wrath of God. The last question is this. How does Psalm 2 point to Jesus in the gospel? Now, the king, I mean, you read Psalm 2, I mean, that's a good king, right? That's a good king. The king pictured in Psalm 2 was the model king. This was God's plan for his king. God's king was to function as God's means of blessing to the nations. God's means of overcoming evil. God's means of putting the world to rights. Recall the three great seed promises. This should be a book. The th- I mean, you can make sense of the whole Bible. These three, there's three great seed promises. There's what? What's the first? Genesis 3.15? Genesis 12.3? Second Samuel 7. Who fulfilled the seed promises? And all of these promises point to a king, really. And who is the ultimate king? All the kings throughout, and I love David. Man, David is my boy, David, in Hebrew, David. But even David failed. Was he perfect? No, man. I mean, he fell in a big way. All the kings of Israel failed, but Christ has succeeded. And we, the church, are now, I can't talk tonight, we, the church, are now called to function as his priest kings, as his royal ambassadors who extend his saving rule by proclaiming the good news that Jesus is king. He lived, he died, he rose again to save sinners like us. So get off the throne, repent, and trust in Jesus, and you can be saved. You can be forgiven. You can be right with God. The implications of this simple message are massive. Again, Jesus is king. To say that Jesus is king is to declare, one, that you're not king, right? That's so hard for us, though, isn't it? I don't want to do that. I mean, I want to be king. But when you say that Jesus is king, you're saying that you're not king. Oh, but that's the first step, and only by the Spirit of God. say that Jesus is king is to say that God has won, that sin and evil have been dealt with, and that salvation, forgiveness of sin, and reconciliation to God have been provided. Jesus is the king that Psalm 2 points to. When we gather, we gather as the king's people. We sing of the king, we worship the king, and we bring ourselves under the king's rule by coming under his what? His his word, his life-giving word. And then when we leave this place and we leave our gathering, what do we do? We go and declare the, the king. The king. The king has come, amen? The king has come. Psalm 2 has found its beautiful fulfillment in Jesus. Furthermore, true salvation is found in Jesus alone, namely by taking refuge in him. 
I love the way it ends. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Refuge from what? God's wrath. Only in Christ are we covered from the wrath of God. We must run to Christ and be united to him by faith to escape the wrath of God. Again, what what should our response to Psalm 2 be? Bow the knee. Worship the king lest you die. It's the text says, lest you die. And what kind of death is that? That's eternal death, eternal separation. Repent and believe, for those who are opposed to God will be judged. They'll be judged. I included this in your handout. How might we pray Psalm 2? And before we do that, let me ask this question. Who knows someone today, whether it's a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, or a friend, who right now does not have Jesus as their king? What are we called to do? What are we called to do, church? We're called to proclaim to them the good news that Jesus is king. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. And, and why is this king so good? One, he's God, and we know he's good, but he died for us. He died for sinners. He took the wrath that we deserve in our place. Amen? He made a way. He did it all to save sinners like us. And again, I mean, just listen, read, read the end of Psalm 2. If you know someone, and I know you do, like I know, that doesn't follow Christ, does not have Christ as their king, read the end of this. Now, there, oh, I mean, you can even insert there, now therefore, Sean, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son. You have to unpack that for him, right? Kiss the, give your allegiance to Jesus, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in Jesus. God's judgment's coming. We all deserve it, but those who trust in Jesus are what? Forever spared the wrath of God because Christ took it for us. So how might we pray Psalm 2? And I'm, I'm providing this every week now, kind of a sample prayer, a sample response Again, God speaks to us in his word. We speak back in prayer. We need to learn to pray in response to God's word. It's really simple. So I'm going to just pray with me, but I'm going to read this. This is verses 1 to 3. Father, we were once your enemy. We foolishly tried to rule our lives independently of you. Even now there are times when we try to take back control, when we put our selfish interests ahead of yours and fall back into sin. Lord, forgive us. Help us to see the utter foolishness of rebellion against you. Thank you for saving rebels like us. And then verses 4 to 6. Father, in great faithfulness to your promises, you sent the King, Jesus Christ. We praise you for your saving solution to our problem of sin and rebellion. Through King Jesus, the evil powers have been disarmed and reconciliation to you provided. We are in awe of your goodness and grace. And then verses 7 to 9, Father, your heart is for the nations. Make that our heart as well. We thank you that your worldwide love has resulted in a worldwide mission to make disciples of all nations. Help us to function as your people on mission, making your name known to a lost and dying world. And then verses 10 to 12, Father, we repent of our sin and give our allegiance to King Jesus. We praise you that in Christ we are counted as new creation. And that in Christ we find shelter from your wrath. Help us to rest in Christ's righteousness. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.